Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 55th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is how smart products are transforming everyday life. I'm joined by Carla Deanna. She is the author of My Robot Gets Me, How Social Design Can Make New Products More Human. The publisher is Harvard Business Review Press. Carla is a robot designer responsible for the creative aspects of Diligent Robotics' new hospital service robot named Moxie. She created and leads the 4D Design Master's Program at the Cranbrook Academy of Art. She wrote the world's first children's book on 3D printing called Leo the Maker Prince, and she co-hosts the Robo Psych podcast. Welcome to the show, Carla. Thanks for having me, Dan. Absolutely. So give us an overview of the book, if you don't mind. Sure. So the book, it's called My Robot Gets Me, as you mentioned. And it is about the way that robotics is starting to appear in our everyday products and uh, looking towards a future where we'll see more and more of that. And that may be through conversational agents. It may be through... um, movement. I break it down to light, sound, and movement. And what I'm really looking at in the book is a design approach towards creating these type of products that puts social interaction front and center and encourages an organization to have everyone who's involved in a product's creation really treat that as the central focus of all their activities so that they're aligned. And By that, I mean how a person interacts with a product. And in the past, we might have had what we would think of as kind of canned responses, right? If you were making your microwave oven prepare popcorn, it would beep a certain way to let you know that the popcorn was prepared. And we're going into an era where we're starting to have products like some of our uh, voice agents that will respond to us on the fly. So it's a little bit more of a real social and then what leads to an emotional relationship as opposed to just an interaction with something that's pre-programmed. Okay. So that was a mouthful, but <laughs> I hope that makes sense. <laughs> no, I think it did. So I have to ask you, you know, as a designer over the course of your career, would you say that you have uh, a design vocabulary, a certain style of your own, and, and what might it be? Yes. So I definitely have a design vocabulary. I mean, I have a focus. So let's start there. I've really focused my entire career around physical things that have electronic guts. And what that allows is for the thing to be programmed and for it to kind of come to life in some way. You know, again, I look at the three modalities of light, sound, 
and movement. And so my, my design approach is really looking at how we use the object as something that can be expressive or have a language and not necessarily a literal language, but a really abstract one where maybe a pulsing light lets us know that something is connected to power or if something spins around, we know that it has a microphone that's listening to someone. So I think that all of those um, relationships between the person and the object are what drive everything about the design for me, what material is, what it's shaped like, what color highlights are there, et cetera. Okay. Well, I, I find those modalities very interesting in part um, because of motion. I, uh, in my research work, have used eye tracking. So people I know are certain principles that come out over time. And one of them is indeed motion because from a uh, I guess, behavioral psychology point of view, when something's in motion, it means there's a change in the status quo Mm -hmm. and it can represent an opportunity or it can represent a threat, but either way, it does capture our attention. So I want to allow you to go deeper on those modalities because you've spent your whole career focused there. So why not um, go a bit deeper and explain to us, you know, sound, motion, lighting, any other examples, any way which you want to elaborate, uh, I'd be happy to hear about. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're very obsessed right now with what I've already mentioned, some of these conversational agents, and we might think of those. I don't like to mention them too much on the air because they might summon um, (laughs) in the backgrounds, but, uh, um, you know, like the Amazon Echo, let's say, has a conversational agent. And we, we we think a lot about that or we're used to looking at messages on the screen, but a lot of those messages can be given to us in a kind of a shorthand. And, um, you know, the, actually the Amazon echoes are a really good example of something like that, where there's a light ring on the top of the, in the, in the you know, traditional echo that's kind of like a shape, like a canister, there's a light ring and that light ring gives us a lot of messages that we can read in a split second, even though there's no words and there's no you know, verbal. So we, we know, um, if it's on, we know if we've summoned it's what we would call it's wake word and it's actively listening. We know in which direction, because there's a multi-directional array of microphones in there. We know which one is the one that's, um, focused on the sound at the given moment. And, you know, that's, that's a lot of nuance just from a, a pretty minimal light ring. So, you know, there's a lot around light or, you know, another great example is one of the older models of the MacBook pro had this blue light that just kind of glowed softly and would get brighter and then dimmer just continuously. And uh, Apple actually has a patent on that uh, as a breathing light. And we and we and it has the same um, cadence as the human breaths per minute. And so we read it intuitively as something just breathing, being alive. So that's a little bit about light and the kinds of things that we might read. And then with sound, we um, I, I worked on a project with a company that's called Neato Robotics that makes a floor cleaning vacuum. And uh, I hired a composer to work on a suite of sounds. 
And we started the project, me and the team, and I had us isolate what the key critical moments would be and think about the emotional aspect of those moments. So if the vacuum is running out of battery, let's say that might be a moment of distress or if it's stuck under a couch and there are certain tones with that. And then there's also just, you know, moments of jubilation, like the, um, having just completed cleaning the room. And so with the composer, I broke those down into English phrases, but then had him kind of translate them into little, like very, very short, very short. Cause I also think about, um, the fatigue people get from too many beeps and bloops and sure. lights and alerts, but, um, you know, th- distilling those down into just, uh, you know, second or fraction of a second sound that communicates a really specific message. And so that's- I almost, I, I almost get an image of sound emojis just to create a new term. Oh yeah. There you go. <laughs> it's kind of like that. I mean, people do talk about, um, sound logos and signature sounds, but the, what we were doing, it's a, it was a little bit like sound emojis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so, so when you mentioned the uh, d- design philosophy and approach you've had in the vocabulary over the years, so a couple of things really struck me from that. One is you're talking about things are very much now on the fly, that they have this spontaneity opportunity. Um, so let's go there first. W- what does that create as an opportunity for you and what kind of maybe challenges does that create as a designer? Um, well, uh, yeah, both. So certainly, <laughs> certainly tons of opportunity because there's a lot of opportunity to bring delight as well as ease of use and to really um, adapt with a person. You know, so a lot of times in design, we might actually look at the timeline of a relationship that a person has with a product. So when you first bring something home and it's you know, fresh out of the box, you might have this kind of honeymoon period where you're, um, you know, more welcoming of say like a lot of what I called bleeps and bloops before a lot of, you know, a lot of sounds and interaction. And, uh, that's also a, a learning moment where the product is kind of ideally you, we, as designers, we don't want people reading a manual. So having a lot of this sort of upfront interaction that's kind of on the fly and that gradually changes over time is uh, a bonus for building a strong relationship that is not annoying with a person, let's say. Um, so that's just one aspect. I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of pros and the pros really, they come, um, they come from an attitude of um, intuitive interaction. And a lot of what I talked about in the book was having worked with academic labs and particularly the socially intelligent machines lab that was at Georgia Tech and is now at UT Austin, where the entire lab is focused on studying how we might interact with products in a natural human way. So instead of having to learn computer codes or even certain button presses, you just come to the interaction with what you know as a human being. You know how to look at something, you know how to talk 
to someone you know how to let's say there was a robot that we had called Simon in that lab where you could hand the robot an object and it would actually take it in the palm of its hand and and hold it up to its eyes etc cetera, etc cetera. um so uh there's a lot of benefit in terms of um sophisticated interaction that doesn't require knowing how to use a, a computer or, or code. Um, so that's the pros. So we'll, we'll put a, we'll put that in, in the, in the one side. And sure. then the, um, the cons are, are really there. There are quite a few to think about because once you start having these social interactions, we actually start to fall into this natural sense of having a re- relationship, uh, you know, it certainly, um, some kind of relationship with this object. And with that comes the potential to be persuaded. And so, um, you know, I really, there is a sense of ethics that I encourage with designers to have um, as good enough a sense of as they can around what the intention of the device is and, um, you know, and be on board with that because there is there is a potential to be persuaded to you know take habits or buy products you don't need um and so that's that's one aspect of it um and that becomes particularly um important when we think about vulnerable populations like children or people with cognitive disabilities who might not necessarily be able to distinguish the voice that is happening um, with this product in which with which they're interacting, and you know a, a true human relationship. So I think there's a there's a, a lot to be wary of there, and then and then there's certainly lots of privacy issues around the way that data is collected because. The and the thing that I struggle with a lot as a designer is that we get really sophisticated interaction when we have kind of you know the microphone array that's in the Amazon Echo or some of the other conversational agents like in the Google Home, etc. Um, or even cameras that are starting to appear in a lot of products. I mean, I'm sitting in front of a laptop right now that's got a camera yeah. just yeah. focused right at me. Um and Um, balancing the benefits of having sophisticated sensing with the dangers of having so much of our private data that it can just get collected and we don't know where it's collected. We don't know where it's stored. We don't know where it might be used. Sure. Well, first of all, I want to, you know, thank you for your enthusiasm on the positive side because I, I can, it's, it's manifest and it's exciting to think about all the things that you're working to achieve. And, on behalf of a lot of other users who have been frustrated or intimidated by having a manual, mm-hmm. uh, to be able to uh, benefit from, uh, you know, intuitive interactions uh, sounds wonderful, uh, indeed. On on the challenges side, I also want to appreciate your 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 candor and your concern. I had worked for the New Jersey Division of Consumer Affairs earlier in my career, 
And uh, yes, there's always a concern about uh, privacy issues, uh, concern about vulnerable populations that uh, in some cases might be manipulated. So I appreciate that as well. Uh, we had talked a little bit about surveillance capitalism, for instance, which is a mm-hmm. we're very concerned about uh, you know monitoring of behavior and uh, essentially monetizing that information that we cl- it gets collected about people's private habits right. and behaviors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to say more on that front. I really want to emphasize a lot of the positives, but I think it's it's a worthwhile conversation to acknowledge these concerns as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, part of part of the goal of the book as well is was to to recognize that these robotic you know, I use robotic in quotes, but they really are bringing aspects of robotics into everyday products are something that is are, are starting to touch um, the lives of not just you know, at one point it was just technology enthusiasts but now we really have a mainstream consumer base for yep. these kind of products and one of my hopes with the book is that it would be of interest to anyone frankly who wants to know a little bit more about how these products work. So it's not just this kind of magical thing that's happening inside of the the shell of a consumer product, but that, you know, everyone understands the importance of having some literacy around knowing like, oh yeah, that does that because it has a microphone, that does that because it has a camera, and just understanding our um rights and our expectations around how these remarkable sensing devices are using our data. Yep. No, very, very well said. Um, one more thing from your introductory remarks regarding uh, kind of your design style and focus. Uh, you mentioned electronic guts, and of course the user has non-electronic guts. And there's a wonderful comment in the book where you said that the powerful, powerful sensation of having an emotional exchange with a product is the holy grail of product design. Now, I read that in yeah. a context, but let's help out the, the listener who doesn't have that context. You want to maybe elaborate on that, that wonderful statement? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that quote. Um, Well, you know, like I said earlier, a lot of my insight came from um, having worked with these research labs. In my career, I've really been torn in two directions. I enjoy working with research labs and universities, which are at the cutting edge of everything that's happening with technology. So you can kind of taste the future coming um, and see what's going to be happening, even though it's not happening yet. And then, you know, I've also really always enjoyed uh, working with companies that are bringing products to market, because then you actually get to see part of your creation that is, um, you know, in people's homes and and touching their lives. So um, what's been interesting for me is to uh, take some insight from my experience with the research labs. And so I believe that the the quote you're talking about comes uh, at least in in its core origin from a project that was taking place at the Georgia Tech Socially Intelligent Machines Lab under a professor whose name is um, Andrea Tomaz. And we were working with this robot whose name is Simon. 
And, um, you know, I had, I was part of the core team, which I also really, um, always admired and appreciated about, uh, Andrea is that she recognized the power and the value of design and with this robot. So it was this robot that was, um, uh, to be geeky about it, it was an upper torso humanoid, basically a human-ish, human-ish, like it has a head <laughs> and it has has eyes, but it's still a hard plastic. So you're not, it's not yep. meant to be creepy or fool you into thinking that it's a, a person, but it has some um, human characteristics. Like it has eyes, it has a head, it can speak, it can nod its head. Um, and I gave it these exaggerated ears. And at one point I had said, you know, can we put, can we put lights in those ears that would give us just another mode of expression? And, um, Jonathan Holmes, who was our engineer at the, at the time said, um, yeah, sure. We have, there's a lot of, a lot of space in there. We can just add, we can add to the electronics and we can control that. And, and, you know, the first time I actually saw, uh, Simon, um, you know, alive, let's say, the first time I saw it doing a live demo, which was at the CHI conference, the Computer Human Interaction Conference, it was in Atlanta, I think in 2010, um, I, the robot was trained to do this exercise where it would sort colors. And so you would hand the robot an object, it would hold it up to its eyes, which were really its cameras, and then you would give it a sentence. You would say, this goes in the red bin. And the robot would be able to parse that sentence and then um, connect the word red with whatever it saw in the pixels of the camera that was that had, had, had the object in its vision. And there was this moment when I handed the robot this object and said, you know, Simon, where does this go? And the ears had been programmed to uh, mimic the color that it was seeing as soon as it recognized the color, as soon as it, it recognized, wow. you know, yeah. And there, it was this kind of immediate visceral sense of, of like, oh, the robot knows, it knows what I want. It's reading my mind. It's, uh, and, it, and it was just this immediate exchange and it was very nonverbal. I mean, I, you know, I was doing the first, the, the prompts were programmed to read my, my verbal, my actual English words, but this exchange of when it just, you know, I go, you know, where, where does this go? And then it just, it just blink goes red. And, and I, I just, it felt really, um, intuitive and immediate and um, connected to the task at hand. And it was one of those light bulb moments for me as a designer where I felt like, you know, that's what it should feel like to use an electronic product. Not like the, not like a maddening, you know, like what button did I press and where's the menu and do I go back or do I go home? You know, it just, it just happened. Okay. Yeah. What James Joyce would have called an epiphany as opposed to, I remember my father who was an engineer once said, well, the lawnmower is not working. So why don't you take it apart and, and re reassemble it? It'll be a good opportunity to know how it functions. And I thought you have to be kidding, dad. <laughs> that lawnmower will never work again. If I start to take Aww. it apart, <laughs> this will not happen. Yeah. Um, you have another wonderful uh, comment in the book. You talk about form 
follows feeling. That seems to me quite important for what you're about. Um, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. You know, um, there is, I, you know, I, I talk, I've just was meeting with some of my students this morning and I talk a lot about storytelling. And when I say that phrase storytelling, people immediately think of words on a page, but what a designer does is also storytelling and it's storytelling around, um, this object saying to the person, this is how you use me. This is where you put me. Um, this is what role I play. This is the state of mind in, you know, in which you'll enjoy me the most. And that's a story. And those things are told through a semantic that comes through the materials that um, an object has or the um, the textures of it, or you know, certainly these modalities that I talk about are almost another kind of material, even though they're dynamic and fleeting. But this light, sound, and movement, and you know, there are different um, feelings based on different choices that a designer makes. And um, actually, you know, the, this place where I have created this new master's program, Cranbrook Academy of Art, in the 80s had established a, a lot of theories around what they call design semantics that really influenced product design from from there on out. And the product semantics has to do with just what I'm saying, where there's, there's a vocabulary and, you know, it, it comes across the, the clearest way to explain it is maybe, um, looking at tools or sporting equipment, right? So if you had, um, if you have a, uh, rollerblade, let's say that is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's in a, like a bright color with really soft shapes and maybe even some stickers. And, uh, that would really communicate this feeling of, um, I'm for play and yeah, I'm for fun. Yep. Yeah. For fun. As opposed to, you can look at other models of skates that have, um, you know, maybe may, they might even use, um, these, these green and black and brown colors that are associated with camouflage are associated with warfare and hunting, and they might have, um, severe ridges on them, which, and that would be a skate that indicates, you know, it's for competition and it's for intensity, et cetera, et cetera. So that's just a little example of what, what I mean when I say something like that. Okay. Uh, another term you had in the book, body storming. I was intrigued by oh, that one. Yes. Yes. So, um, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's really, you know, uh, uh, a lot of the point of the book, like I said earlier, is around having an, everyone in an organization aligned around the importance of this social exchange. And so when I start a new project with a client, I encourage a workshop at the very start of the process. And that workshop should be attended by people in engineering, as well as people in marketing, as well as people in the, the design fields. And um, 
you know, one of the exercises that we'll do there is to literally act out the exchange between the product and the person. So, um, you know, it's at one point in my time at smart design, we were working on an automobile interior. And so we literally put the very first thing we did was put, uh, four chairs in, in the, the middle of the floor and we each sat in the chairs and somebody grabbed, you know, a disc. And then we had a wall in front of us where we could, you know, tape up, um, an iPad and think about, you know, what kind of information we might want to get from it or, and you don't even use an iPad. Like you, you would use the quickest material. So with a lot of the hospital robot work, what I had the team do was set up environments that would simulate the environments in which the exchange between the person and the robot would take place. So it might be, let's say, the um, pharmacy section of a hospital, and then someone plays the role of the nurse someone literally plays the role of the robot. And then there might be cardboard boxes that represent the medications and, you know, or somebody plays the role of the pharmacist and you act out and it sounds ridiculous and it sounds like what you do in Mm -hmm. kindergarten, but it's an incredibly helpful exercise that, you know, doing it in real time and real space reveals a lot of the nuances of what is going to inform the design. And, um, you know, that phrase it's, um, used by Bill Buxton, who is a researcher at Microsoft research. He writes about it in a book called designing user experiences. Uh, I don't know if he coined it or not, but, um, sure. It's, uh, it's, yeah, and it's a term I really like to expound upon and I really believe is an, is an important initial method in the design process for products like these. No, I, I think it is because it keeps it very humans. I mean, you got all this electronics going on, electronic guts you mentioned earlier, but you also have to, I've got a human being who's going to use this. I need to stay alive to what's their experience and how they're encountering it. And you made reference just a moment ago to the nuances. One of my um, most interesting interviews, <clears throat> excuse me, being a facial coder was I was invited to the Detroit Auto Show one year by uh, Auto News. And we went through and I actually facially coded the, the fronts of cars. One after another oh, in so the show. Oh, so fascinating! Oh, I'd and, love to learn more about that. Yeah, and and Donald Norman has written a uh-huh. uh, a book called right. "Turn Signals Are the Facial Expressions yeah. of Automobiles," but I, I, for the life of me, I don't know why he would stop with the turn signals because obviously right. the the grill and the the hood yeah. curvature and so forth. So the one I always remember was there was a VW that they confessed to me hadn't sold very well. Uh-huh. And even though it was just out, but it, the sales were bad. And I looked at the front and went, oh, my God, you blew it. It's the love bug. How could you make the love bug severe? Because the way in which the front was designed really kind of simulated a face when it's angry or disgusted. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I was like, you're so off uh-huh. emotion. How could you be so uh-huh. off emotion in a design for the love bug of all things? Right, right. So it just, it can happen sometimes. That's why I, I love the the drive to the future, but it's also nice to realize the present and the person right. who will use this thing and what's going to happen for them. Yeah. That's, that's that's a great uh, and important duality to, to hold on to. I, I had one last question for you since you mentioned part of your thing is the research labs, but you're also very much concerned about being in the marketplace and helping bring these products to the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So we both know companies and the bigger they are, sometimes the more the turf battles uh, and the, the bureaucracy sets in. 
how do you manage to keep them aligned to where you need to go when you have so much, I'll call it, you know, corporate politics to potentially wade through as well? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's where, I mean, that's where I think the book can be the most powerful is if, because in, in a lot of ways, um, it's certainly written for designers and designers will enjoy it. But my hope is that they will also enjoy sharing this book with another part of the company because, you know, yeah, in my experience in consulting, I have seen what I believe you're talking about, which is there are silos, right? There's, you know, marketing has all of their goals and all of their ideas and And engineering and accounting. Um, and, uh, you know, and they just kind of hand things off to one another. And what I really advocate for in the book is having those parts of an organization aligned and, you know, hopefully having this initial conversation about, Hey, what, what's this ideal goal? We should all have the same goal around what the relationship is between a person and this product. And that's going to inform how we talk about it in marketing. It's going to inform, um, you know, there's a a lot of, I, I work with a great team of engineers at Diligent Robotics. And the, the fact that the engineers really um, understand the importance of the social interaction. Diligent was built by um, Andrew Tamaz, the professor I mentioned earlier, who's really a specialist in social robotics. And so the entire organization is aligned on the importance and the value of the social interaction. And it means that an engineer will work twice as hard to try to say, like, hide a sensor if it's um, a distraction or, you know, um, accentuate a sensor if we want people to understand that they need to to look the robot in the eye, so to speak, um, and, and all of the nuances therein. Okay. Well, once again, it sounds like form follows feeling. Uh, we are at the end of the program. I want to thank you, Carla, so much for being my guest here today. Uh, this has been episode number 55, How Smart Products Are Transforming Everyday Life. My guest, Carla Diana, the author of My Robot Gets Me, How Social Design Can Make New Products More Human. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other episodes by going to either my company's website, uh, the obligatory three W's, sensorylogic.com, or to the New Books Network, where this appears under the special series programming. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. Given today's topic, here's a quote from Ray Bradbury, who wrote, I am not afraid of robots. I am afraid of people, people, people. I want them to remain human. Mm. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.